Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this wonderful book of Acts and all that it's had to teach us and all that it's had to challenge us. Uh, and we pray that tonight you might help us to set aside all those other distractions, all those other things that uh, take up our mind and help us to concentrate on understanding your word correctly. And we pray that we might learn what it is to follow Christ from the example of the Apostle Paul. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have heard the saying before, I think, that all roads lead to Rome. Everyone's heard that saying. Uh, when people say that today, when they say all roads lead to Rome, uh, often it's used to mean uh, something about religion. So often people say to me, oh, you follow Jesus and uh, she follows Buddha and he follows Muhammad, but all roads lead to Rome, so it's all okay. What do we think about that? I'd like a more thorough answer there from the congregation. What do we think when people say that? No. Say it. Thanks, Nell. Say it even louder. Can't say it better myself. No, all roads don't lead to Rome. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. That's what Jesus said. That's the song. Anyway, there you go. But actually, it's from the John's Gospel. There's only one way to find salvation. There's only one way to find God. There's only one way to find the forgiveness that God offers us, and that is in Christ Jesus. So I normally don't like that saying that all roads lead to Rome. But back in the ancient world, it didn't have that sort of metaphorical meaning. It had a literal meaning. Uh, when they said all roads lead to Rome, they meant it. Uh, because Rome was the center of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. And so literally, if you got on a, ro a road in North Africa, or if you got on a road in Israel, or if you got on a road in Asia Minor, Turkey, or Greece, or over the other side in Spain, or Gaul, which is France, or, or up where the tribes in Germany were at that time, if you got on a road, eventually you would get to Rome. Because Rome was the center, it was like the, the center of the wheel, and all the spokes went out from there. And what that meant was, if you had ambition... If you wanted to change the world, if you had an idea that you wanted other people to know about, you wanted to go to Rome. Because from Rome, it could go out along those spokes and really change the world. So from the very beginning of the book of Acts, we have been on a journey to Rome. I remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8. I hope you know it off by heart by now. But Jesus' great mission statement for his disciples. What did he say to them? He said, you will be my witnesses. Where to? To Jerusalem. Where else? Judea and Samaria. And then? The ends of the earth. Well, to get to the ends of the earth, they had to take the gospel to Rome. So from the very beginning, they knew that's where they were going. And from the moment Paul was converted, back in Acts chapter 9, on the road to Damascus, you remember when the, Jesus appeared to him, the bright light, he was blinded, all of that. Straight away, Jesus said to him, you are my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the nations. And from that moment on, Paul knew he had to go to Rome. Because if he was going to take the gospel to the nations, he had to go to Rome. Because from Rome, the gospel could just go out in every direction, literally, to the ends of the earth. Now, now, we have to understand, Paul wasn't the only evangelist in the world of that time. There were already Christians in Rome by this time. Paul had already written the letter we have in the New Testament called Romans to the church that was there. It was probably a tiny church at that time. Uh, so other people had gone and taken the gospel there. People maybe like Apollos or Peter or John or others who'd heard the gospel. So Paul wasn't going to Rome to start the work. 
He'd already, the gospel already got there. There was already a church there. But he knew that if he built up the church in Rome, then from there the opportunities were limitless. So now at last, in these last two chapters of Acts, Paul is going to Rome. I love the first verse of uh, chapter 27. Just look at it with me. Uh, it says, When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, sounds like they were sitting there with their you know, Trafalgar tour brochures open. Let's go to Italy. Let's go on a little cruise. But that's not how it happened. Remember last week, he's in jail. He's been arrested. He's in chains. So he's not getting there how he intended to go. But Paul says, I don't care how I get there as long as I get there. So he was going in chains. Uh, now, we saw it last week where we're up to. Paul is in Caesarea. I've got a map coming up on the screen, if Ben can help me out there. We've got the map, one of my great maps. We're over here, which is Israel. I'll turn my back to you, but that's the wonder of microphones, as you can still hear me. Uh, he's over here. He's gone from Jerusalem up to Caesarea. And Festus, do you remember Festus? We met last week, the governor. Festus hands him over to a Roman centurion called Julius. And Julius's job is to get Paul to Rome. So Julius gets them on a boat and they set off. Now just remember, this is the ancient world. This is not some great cruise. This is a, a dangerous sea voyage. It was going to take them months to get there. Now I've got, a, I've got the map here and the first part goes fairly uneventfully. We're in verses 1 to 8 at this point. They sail up the coast. They go around the top of Cyprus, along the top of Asia Minor there. Uh, and then they join on another boat in a place called Myra that was heading to Rome. And they sail down to Crete, which is the long thin island in the middle. And they sail along the bottom of that, and it's all going well until they get to a place called Fair Havens. I always think it sounds like a retirement village at Port Macquarie or something, but anyway. Uh, now, at that point, it was clear to anyone they weren't going to get to Rome in a hurry. Uh, you see, it was heading into October by that time. Remember, we're in the northern hemisphere, not the southern. It was heading into winter, and you did not sail in November and December. It was just too dangerous. The storms were too bad uh, through the winter. And so Paul gave them some advice. Look at verse 10, chapter 27. He says, Man, I can see that this voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, some people think Paul was sort of sharing a prophecy there that God had given him a vision and that he knew bad things were going to happen. I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think it's just that Paul is actually a really experienced traveler by this time. He's been wandering around and sailing around these islands, sharing the gospel for over 20 years. He's been to these places before. He's saying to them, if, if we go on, in my experience, th bad things are going to happen. But in any event, they didn't listen. The centurion and the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship decide, we'll just try and get a little bit further along the island of Crete, try and get up and around in there where it'll be a safer place to stay for the winter. And that is when the trouble started. Because as they crept along the coast in their little boat, the wind swung around to the northeast and it hammered them. Uh, when I was a teenager, we went to Caloundra in Queensland. Anyone have been to Caloundra before? few people have. There you go. I used to live up in Queensland. That's where we went for holidays. And in Caloundra, there's this channel and then there's this island off there called Bribey Island. And my brother and I was about 14. He was about 16. We thought, we'll hire a windsurfer. We'd never used a windsurfer before and they didn't offer us any lessons or anything. But we thought, we'll hire a windsurfer and we'll just see how we go. And then this wind came up and I ended up on Bribey Island. I literally couldn't stop the thing and it was going too fast for me to use the only tactic I'd learned, which was just to fall off. And so I ended up on Bribey Island, and I'd only hired it for an hour. And uh, it took me about five hours to get back across the wind. Needless to say, I've never gone on a windsurfer again in my life. 
But that is something, a very minor thing in comparison of what happened here. See, there was nothing they could do. They were just driven along by the wind. They actually thought they were going to get driven onto North Africa. That's what they thought was going to happen. And they were driven along for days and nights on end. It's sort of like what happened to Jonah in the same seas, if you remember the story of Jonah. Uh, and basically, they all knew they were going to die. Now, remember that Paul is a prisoner. Remember that he's a prisoner. It's not like he's a free man. He's in chains on this ship. Uh, but it was at that point that, point that Paul stood up and take the, took the lead, even as a prisoner. Look uh, from verse 21. It says, Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, You men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. I love that verse. because It seems like even Paul can't resist a bit of I told you so before he says things. Then look at verse 22. He says, Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives but only of the ship. For this night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you, all those who are sail- given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe, God, that it will be just the way it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. It seems like Paul must have been praying for himself. Uh, but he was also praying for these other people, the way it says God has given you these people. It seems like it's, it's an answer to prayer. And God answers his prayer by sending this angel who appears to him with a message and a promise that he will keep them safe and that Paul will get to Rome. Now, please understand, that this promise is not a promise that God will keep everyone safe in every storm of life. It's amazing how many times I've heard this. That, and just like God kept Paul safe in the storms, in the storms of your life, God will keep you safe. This is a special revelation and a special promise to Paul because he was part of God's plan to take the gospel to the world. It was God's plan that he get to Rome. We don't have that personal promise. So just take that into account. Now, we don't know whether they believe Paul or not, but by now they were just drifting along. So the storm has sort of died down a bit. Uh, but after two weeks of this, the sailors worked out that they were approaching land. They, they dropped like a rock on a rope down and measured the depth and worked out it's getting shallower. We're approaching land. And so they started to worry. They were scared that they were, they'd be smashed on the rocks. And so some of the sailors tried to pull a Swifty and sort of went up the front of the boat. That's terrible for the Swifts. I'm sorry that that, that expression uh, is used. In there. Well, I'll try not to use that in future. But anyway, uh, they went up to the front of the boat where the lifeboat was and just sort of tried to drop it over and thought we'll get off and leave everyone else on the boat but Paul spots them and he points out to the centurion and the centurion says no 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 we're either all going to die or all going to live and he cuts the the little boat away uh, they're all going to live or die together and it's amazing though how Paul just assumes command remember there's a Roman centurion there's the ship's owner there's the ship's captain but they all defer to the prisoner they all defer to Paul. He's running the show at this point. Now, some people talk about how that was because Paul was such an impressive leader that people just naturally followed him. Uh, I don't think that's what it was. In other parts of the Bible, it says that Paul was not actually that impressive a man. Uh, he wasn't a great speaker and all those sorts of things. What it was, was when things are hopeless and when things are out of control and there is no hope, humanly speaking, you don't need a leader. You need God's grace. And you see, the people on this ship by that point could see that it was only Paul, and far more importantly, only Paul's God 
who had any answers to what was going on. And he was the one who offered them hope. And that's why they were willing to submit to Paul's leadership at this point. And so there's this beautiful moment from verse 33. Look from verse 33. It says, When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you've been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he broke it, he began to eat. And they all became encouraged and took food themselves. I think it's a wonderful little section there. Because I want you to remember how over the last two weeks, remember how we've just seen over and over again how Paul takes every opportunity to talk about Jesus. So he's there in front of a mob who are baying for his blood. And what does he do? He says, yeah, don't take me away. I just want to share my testimony with them. I just want to tell them about Jesus, even though they want to kill me. Uh, then, whether he's arguing for his life in front of the governor or in front of the king, what does he do? He doesn't try and defend himself. He says, I just want to tell you about Jesus. And they go, are you mad? You're meant to be defending yourself. He says, no, I just want to tell you about Jesus. Well, here is the positive side of that. Here in front of them all, what does Paul effectively do? Effectively, Paul just says grace. He just gives the credit where it's due. He just says, well, here I am, I'm giving you food, and the person who's given it to us is my Lord and Saviour. So I want to give thanks to the God of my Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, for this food we're about to share. Uh, see, we mightn't ever appear before mobs baying for our blood like Paul did. Uh, I pray you don't. We might never appear before, God, before kings or governors, but every one of us has those simple opportunities to witness to Christ, don't we? Even if it's just as simple as saying grace with visitors at our dinner table and saying, I believe that it is the Father of my Lord and Saviour who gave us this food. Well, back to the passage. When daylight comes, they're about to run aground on an island. They have no idea where they are at this point. They could be in Africa. They could be in Italy. They don't know. And the soldiers say, we want to kill all the prisoners. And the reason for that is, in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, the soldiers were given charge of the prisoners, but if a prisoner escaped, the soldier was killed. That's how it worked. If you let the prisoner escape, you got killed. So they're thinking, well, we can't know what's going to happen to these prisoners. Let's just kill them, and that way we'll know what's happened to them. But in any event, Paul has had such an impact on the centurion that he won't let them do it. And what it tells us is that they all scramble ashore, and all 276 people on the boat survive just like God had promised. And now we're in chapter 28, which we didn't read before. So make sure you're at chapter 28. And if we look at our map, where they had ended up was that little island under Sicily there. Sicily, where all the mafia is and all that sort of thing. That little island under there, and that is the island called Malta. Is anyone from Malta here? Anyone with family background from Malta? No one. That's sad. We need to go and evangelize the Maltese community, people. There we go. Anyone been to Malta? One per, there we go, well done Annie, yes. Now Malta is a lovely place, isn't it? It is, I've never been there, but yeah. Uh, but I have been told that Malta is a lovely place and they had blown halfway across the Mediterranean and do you know you can go today, and I don't know if Annie's been there, but you can go to St Paul's Bay and here is the picture of it, if my PowerPoint person can help me. Here is St Paul's Bay, that's a pretty nice place to get shipwrecked, isn't it? I don't think it looked like that that night. It didn't have luxury yachts. It didn't have people in bikinis and umbrellas on the beach and all that sort of thing. But you can go there to this day. 
So anyway, they end up on this island of Malta and the Maltese people, it says, showed them incredible hospitality. Uh, do you know the Maltese people are still proud of the way they treated the Apostle Paul when he came there? So if you go there today, there's, everything's about St. Paul and so forth. And they, they still talk about how they gave this incredible hospitality to the Apostle Paul. And what they did was they lit a fire for them. They gave them shelter. They gave them food, all that sort of thing. Uh, but as Paul was helping to collect some wood for the fire, a snake came out and bit him on the hand. It says it's like the, the snake was latched onto his hand and, and hanging off his hand. So you sort of visualize that. Now, at this point, what you see is the difference between a pagan view of the world and a Christian view of the world. You see, they were pagans. The gospel had not got to this island before. They worshipped pagan gods, uh, like the god Dike, the god of justice, who you're going to meet in a second. And so they see Paul standing there with this poisonous snake hanging off his hand, and they say, he must be a murderer. Because that's the way the pagan world thinks about things. If something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad. Look at what they say in verse 4. It says, When the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man is probably a murderer. And though he has escaped the sea, justice, that's literally the god Dike, the god of justice, does not allow him to live. So you see, if something bad happens to you, you must have done something bad to deserve it, and the gods are punishing you. So in their eyes, Paul must be a murderer. Because why else would God have this awful thing happen to him, have him saved out of the ocean and then kill him off with a snake straight away? Is that how we think? This is another one for you to answer. Is that how Christians think? No, it's not how we think. No, we know that good and bad things happen to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. The, the bad things that happen are not specifically tied to, to the sin of an individual. It's because we live in a fallen and broken world. And in fact, Jesus tells us, and the Apostle Paul in other places tells us, that often worse things will happen to Christians in this life sometimes. Because sometimes we will suffer more for being righteous than we will for going along with the world. See, we don't judge a person's position before God. We don't judge whether God is happy with us on the basis of whether we get bitten by a snake or not, or on the basis of whether we get a good job or whether we win the soccer game or whatever it is that people think that shows God is happy with me or something. We know God loves us. Why? Because of what he's done for us in Christ Jesus, not because of our current circumstances. Uh, it's like that song we sing based on Job. You know, blessed be your name, whatever the circumstances Blessed be your name, because God is in control whether bad things or good things are happening. But in any event, the Maltese got the shock of their life in Acts chapter 28, because Paul just shakes the snake off into the fire, and it dies. And they watch Paul, and they're waiting for the venom to sort of go through his veins and, and take a hold of him. They're waiting for him to blow up and, and, and to stop breathing and die, but nothing happens. So then they decided, ah... It's not that the gods were unhappy with this man. It's that he was a god. That's what it was. It's not that they were unhappy with him. This man is a god who's come to walk amongst us. Now, we're not given a lot of detail. But we can safely assume that Paul said that is not the case and didn't take advantage of it like we might have. Uh, but, and it seems like Paul had a great ministry on Malta because what it tells us is that people were healed. We assumed he preached the gospel. Uh, and people were saved and they stopped thinking he was a God and instead they heard about the real man who is God, Jesus Christ. 
Uh, but in any event, we're not told a lot about what happens on Malta because eventually they left there with all their needs provided and they headed up. You can follow, we'll have to go back to the map. Sorry, Ben, you're, uh, I'm confusing you here. Uh, they had to go back up across Italy there, get on another boat, and they headed up and finally they got to Rome. And what you see, and I hope if you haven't read it already, you'll go and read Acts 28. What you see is that Paul has had a massive impact on his travelling companions. By this time, he's basically running the show. Uh, and we don't know how many of the 276 became Christians. We don't know whether Julius, the centurion, became a Christian. What we know is that Paul was really a prisoner in name only by this point. Uh, he gets to stay with Christian friends, it says, at every stop. When he gets to town, the Christians come out and welcome him. Uh, and he's not locked up. He's put under house arrest with just one guard to stay with him. And straight away, Paul starts his work in Rome. Uh, and he can't go to the synagogue because he's under house arrest. But instead, he gets all the Jewish leaders to come to him. And what does he do? He tells them about Jesus. And we've seen this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. He argues with them. He seeks to persuade them. Uh, and just like in every other place, some people are convinced and they give their life to Christ and they find salvation and forgiveness. Uh, and others, though, don't believe and they argue with Paul. And so he tells them, I've done my duty. This is to the Jewish community in Rome. I've told you about your Messiah. Now I'm going to share Jesus with the Gentiles from every nation on earth who are living here in Rome. Uh, and that's where the book ends. And it's sort of a little bit of an anticlimax, actually at the end of Acts 28. There's a little summary to end it all. Uh, look with me at chapter 28, verse 30. It says, Then he stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. And that's it. And in a way, we're sort of left hanging. So the opposite of the Lord of the Rings movies. You know how they have endings that go on for about an hour and you're ready to leave, but it just keeps going and going and goes. The opposite of that. Because you're sort of thinking, what happened to Paul? You, you know, we've followed him all the way to Rome and now you tell us he sits there for Jesus. What happens to him? Well, we know that in those two years, lots of people became Christians. We know that. Uh, we know that he wrote books that we have in our New Testament, like Philippians and uh, Ephesians and Philemon at that time. Uh, people argue about whether he stayed in Rome until 64 AD uh, or whether in 62 AD he went on another trip and then came back again. People argue about that. But either way, most historians agree that in 64 AD he was martyred by the Caesar he'd gone to appear before, Nero, uh, and church history says that he had his head cut off. That's how he was killed. Uh, but the thing is, Luke, who wrote Acts, he doesn't want to tell us that story. He doesn't want to take us there. Uh, and I think that's intentional. Because, you see, ultimately, the book of Acts is not about Paul, is it? I mean, he's been the main character for these last 14 chapters. But what is the book of Acts actually about? Or who is the book of Acts actually about? It's about Jesus. And in a way, Paul knew, and Luke knew that Paul was, just a bit character in that. It's actually about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. Remember how it all started with Jesus giving that command, take my gospel to the ends of the earth. The whole book is about God's plan for the world to hear about salvation in Christ Jesus. It's about God's plan for the gospel, for the message of salvation to get to every person. 
And Luke is saying to us as we get to the end of Acts 28, God in his providential care has taken the gospel through Paul all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. That's where it's got to. And what you've seen is that nothing can stop God's plan happening. Not Jewish riots, not Roman governors, not crazy kings, not the wildest storms, not snakes. Nothing can stop God's plan for the gospel to go to all people. Nothing can stop that happening. And so Luke leaves us with this picture of Paul in Rome in verse 31. And he's there and what is he doing? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's teaching things concerning Jesus Christ. And he's doing it with full boldness. And just for once, for Paul, for the only moment in his life, for that little moment, he was doing it without hindrance, it tells us. And I think we're left with that picture on purpose. You see, because it's meant to ask us the question, will we pick up the baton and run with it? You see, the job didn't finish in Rome. There's still the ends of the earth to go. See, it didn't stop with Paul and it is still going. And do you know what? With some massive highs and some very massive lows as well, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. I don't think Paul ever anticipated that we would be sitting here in a place called Sydney on the bottom of the earth that he didn't even know existed. He probably thought it was flat, not round. He didn't even anticipate that the gospel would get here, but it has got here. And how has it got here? Because people picked up that baton and took the gospel and ran with it. You see, we are here waiting for Christ to return. But in the meantime, we have a job to do. And it is what Paul was doing in, in Rome. Our job is to proclaim the kingdom. Our job is to tell people about Jesus and to do it with boldness. That is why we're here. See, the book of Acts demands that you play your part in God's unstoppable plan for all of creation. See, God's plan that all people would hear about Christ and be offered salvation in him. And I want to say to you, if this book hasn't challenged you to question what part you can play, then I have failed in my preaching. And you need to get a new preacher. Because if it hasn't done that, then I've either failed in my preaching or you have a hard heart and you have a spiritual problem. If this book has not challenged you to think, what role can I play in seeing the gospel go to all people, then there is a serious problem. And for some of us, that will mean following in Paul's footsteps. For some of us, it will mean leaving home and going to Tanzania or going to Slovenia or going even to, to Rome, for that matter, to proclaim Christ to people who need to hear about him. Do you know... There is no greater thing that a person can do with their life than go as a missionary. I think there is no greater thing that a person can do with their life than go as a missionary. I've said this before, but I pray for our church that we get to the point where parents are scared to send their kids to our youth group and our children's ministries. Not for bad reasons. But they're scared to do it because what happens is so many people from Church in the Bank are giving up careers and giving up other things and going and serving with CMS or some other mission organization and going and taking the gospel to the world. That is my prayer for us. There is nothing wrong with being an accountant or a teacher or a shop assistant or a doctor or whatever else it is that we do. But if we are able and if we are willing and if we are suitable, 
There is no greater thing than to go and proclaim Christ to the nations. There is no greater calling. But if we don't go ourselves, and we're not all suitable to go, we're not all appropriate to go, Acts demands that every one of us will still play a part in financially and prayerfully supporting world mission. See, if you are not yet a member and financial supporter of CMS or some other world mission organisation, just do it. Acts demands you do it. I encourage you to do that. But more than that, Acts demands that every one of us will follow the example of Paul wherever we are. See, it mightn't be right for us to go as missionaries to Rome. You mightn't like pastor or something. I don't know. But every one of us has a calling from God. But here is the thing. You do not need a special revelation to work it out. You do not need an angel to come and tell you your special calling from God. It is right here in God's word. If you are a Christian, your calling is to tell people about Jesus with boldness wherever God has put you. In your family, in your school, in your workplace, wherever God has put you. And my prayer for each one of us is that this book of Acts might just have challenged us or it might just have reminded us if we'd forgotten that the reason we are here on this earth is not to live a comfortable life. It's not to, to take the opportunity we have for a great education and get a great career. It's to share Christ. That is why we are here. To share Christ and to share his salvation and to take, play our part in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. That is why we are here. And I pray that Acts might just have challenged you or reminded you of that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book of Acts with the great example of the Apostle Paul who so understood the gospel that he was willing to go in the face of storms, to face snake bites, to stand before kings and governors, but in every situation to proclaim Christ. And we pray that each one of us here might play our role in taking the gospel to all people. And Father, we pray that some here might go out from amongst us, as hard as that is for us, to take the gospel to other people in other places. But we pray that we would all be faithful in supporting people who do that, as well as playing our role in taking the gospel to the people we are already in contact with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.